Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A blazing fire under the body of the nitro-powered Toyota Camry of Alexis DeJoria, and this is as bad a fire as you're ever going to see. On this episode, it's Pro Stock Crew Chief Mark Ingersoll and bracket racing ace Johnny LaBoose Jr. Eric Anders is your 2020 Pro Stock World Champion in stunning fashion. Two Norwalk winners. Scotty's out on Andrew at 1,000 feet. It's Scotty Polachek for the first time in his career. This is the NHRA Insider. Tony Schumacher. Wow, what an appropriate way to end this one. 28 10,000s at the strike. An instant classic final round. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the NHRA Insider. Coming off a great race weekend at the Summit Racing Equipment Nationals in Norwalk, Ohio. Was a really spectacular event. Had great crowds. Had great people. Did not have such the greatest weather on Sunday, but we battled through it. Mostly the racers did, and all of us that were on the grounds did, but uh, it was a spectacular event. Finished uh, several hours after we would have liked it to finish as far as our television window goes, but ultimately was finished on Sunday evening. And, of course, those racers that won, no matter what class, uh, whether we're talking about any of our professional-level category stuff or certainly any of our... Uh, sportsman Lucas Oil drag racing category stuff as well. Every single one of those battles was very hard fought. I think the crew's win is huge. Erica's win is huge. You know, the the stoppage again of uh, Greg Anderson on the precipice of his 97th win. It's a story that continues to perpetuate itself. Um, uh, Matt Smith and Steve Johnson literally staring each other down in the final round was a big moment as well. Um, and then we talk about Top Fuel and and Steve Torrance had a great battle with Brittany. It was not any sort of cakewalk, walk over anything. It was a great side-by-side drag race. Of course, three out of the four final rounds in the Camping World Series were uh, decided by whole shot advantage so very human element there with drivers getting themselves off the starting line first and the end result being that they hoisted wallies at an event that we'd all been waiting to run since 2019 it was great to be back at norwalk and great to be back from uh, a very a very passionate group of ohio drag racing fans and certainly not just Ohio, Ohio, Michigan, and other places. And again, this is a race that uh, unfortunately we have not been able to see our Canadian friends uh, back at the racetrack. A lot of Canadian fans like to come to Norwalk, Ohio as well, and we're looking forward to uh, getting that border open, starting to see some of our Canadian brethren attending events as we get on through the summertime. Um, you know, it was it was a really wild day with the weather uh, in Norwalk. You know, the rain coming in and the track drying off quickly and then getting ready to be back at it. And the rain would start up again. And certainly uh, the adrenaline up and down for these drivers and competitors, they have to manage all that over the course of their days. And the drivers that did it the best, the crew chiefs that did it the best and managed the track conditions ultimately won the race. Um and it was, it's great. We're going to talk to Mark Ingersoll, who is Eric Anders' crew chief, working with Tim Freeman on that car to get it down the racetrack get it set up to succeed going to talk to him about not only this weekend but really the lead up through the season and then what he thinks that this victory means for the team going forward and we'll talk to him about some of his history in the sport of drag racing as well this is a guy who is uh, the son of buddy ingersoll and who is around for some really momentous uh developments and moments in door slammer drag racing Certainly have to thank everybody that uh, works on our NHRA on Fox production crew. It was a day that, um, well, the race may have ended at, I don't know, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock maybe. I'm not sure exactly what time there. Uh, we were pretty much banging on banging on the keys and banging on the cameras and banging on everything else till about 10 o'clock at night. And uh, last I checked, they were still packing gear up at about midnight, getting ready to get out of there. So 
it was one of those days that um, you need a great team and you need a great team on the racetrack you need a great team to execute the event and you certainly need a great team to put the production together and that's uh, exactly what we have and it is a very team environment everybody loves working together and uh was just a whole lot of fun to come out on the other side of that one. I think there were a lot of zombies, whether you're a fan or a racer or involved in putting the event on in any sort of fashion. You were a zombie on Monday. Everybody was uh, was very very spent. We look ahead. We have Denver coming up, but we got a couple of weeks, so it's going to be fun to make some shows uh, after we come off of Norwalk. Going to really turn the spotlight on some great sportsman activities, some great sportsman racers around the country. This week, I wanted to take a little bit of a different direction in terms of who we're talking to. I wanted to talk to winners, but I didn't necessarily want to talk to just the the highline front, you know, uh, driver, the front of the house, so to speak, in the restaurant. Didn't necessarily want to do that. Wanted to talk to people that had a, a big role in victories and maybe victories that uh, you'd like to know more about. Hence, Mark Ingersoll, the crew chief for Erica. That's why we're talking to him. And Johnny LaBoose, the uh, the great bracket racer, the great sportsman racer. Guy wins Epping and Supergas, and then two weeks later wins Supercomp, a seven-round race in Norwalk. And we're going to talk to Johnny a little bit later on in the show. So Denver coming up, as mentioned. Uh, all indications are it's going to be an absolutely rocking crowd there. Some of the most passionate fans in the sport of drag racing exist in Denver, Colorado, and the surrounding states and areas. We have wildly, the crowds there are reactive, which is what I love. Not every racetrack can say this. Not every racetrack can say that when Supergas is running on Sunday, that crowd is cheering for somebody, or maybe both people, or whatever. But the crowd reacts, especially on race day, and especially when they see great performances. This crowd reacts almost unlike any other on the entire NHRA drag racing tour. If you've never been to Bandemir Speedway uh, and you're a fan of NHRA, you really got to get there. I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day who was saying, you know, I never really thought a lot about Bandemir because, you know, the car the cars ran slower there because of the altitude, so I never really thought that much about it. And he's coming to the race for the first time because, you know, last year he's sitting around, he watched some videos. He's like, man, this place seems really cool. And I told him he's in for one of the great, you know, one of the great experiences you can have in the world in the sport of drag racing is attending an event at Bandemir. At Bandemir. Facility is top shelf. It is neat as a pen. It is well-maintained beyond that. Saying it's well-maintained sells it very short. It is maintained with a surgical level of care and precision. And that's what makes it so great. That's why the racers love coming. That's why the fans love coming because everybody feels as though they're giving a, getting a first-class experience, and they are. Yeah, the cars run slower. You're on a mountain. You're 5,000 feet in the air, but isn't that fascinating? Isn't that the fascination of dealing with it, making the best of it, maximizing the hurdles that you have in front of you, trying to turn, um, you know, it's not necessarily making lemonade out of lemons because everybody's got the same pile of lemons. It's, it's literally forcing and exposing you and your team and your crew and your parts and your pieces in, in a way that no other track does because... Sure. Uh, we go to Sonoma the week after, and it'll, see, it'll be sea level. The DA will be like 2,000 feet, and that is, in many ways, the comfort zone. Get down there and run. But when we put you in 9,000 or 10,000 feet, depending on how hot it is, 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 feet of density altitude, now we get to see what you're really made of, and the race always does um, always does showcase creative thinkers and certainly showcases those that have a good uh, zero-oxygen tune-up. 
Pro Stock will not be running at the Mile High Nationals, but Pro Stock Motorcycle will. We'll be talking more about that race as we get a little closer. Like I said, we get the 4th of July coming up. That's going to be a great weekend. We have the uh, the week after that really to get ourselves prepared before we go out there. So a couple of great shows coming, a couple of great guests today. And uh, really the one thing I guess I, I left Norwalk thinking was uh, just being thankful. I, I think a lot of us looked around and saw the excitement, saw the car count, saw the people, saw the emotion displayed by fans who are just very gratified to be back uh at norwalk and i i thought that um i thought to myself that i'm just very thankful to be uh to be in this spot and to be in this sport in this moment because this is a moment that if you love motorsports or drag racing if you follow motorsports if you work in the motorsports industry uh we are experiencing something collectively that um Hopefully, we we never experience again in our lifetimes, but it is a very neat thing to to kind of watch this flower bloom again. You know, we go to these places, and um, there's no guarantees in life. You go to a place, and you hope people want to still see what you do, and they used to, they still want to come out and have fun and, and hang out at the drags, and guess what? They do. Uh, all indications are Denver is going to be, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, is going to be a blowout on Saturday and Sunday and I've I've been told that Friday is uh, looking mighty strong as well so all in all um, it's a very neat moment in time to be part of of uh, the NHRA Camping World Drag Racing Series the NHRA Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series and just drag racing in general because we are seeing we're seeing this thing flex its muscles a little bit and it's great Josh Hart was a story at Norwalk, the RNL Carrier sponsorship on his top fuel car. He went out earlier than he would have wanted, of course. Um, a great matchup with Justin Ashley. Too early in the day for him, but uh, it was still great that he is able to have that partnership with RNL Carriers. My understanding is that Josh Hart will be um, attending a lot more races than he had planned, and the majority of the races for the back half of the season. Not everybody will be attending Denver. There are some teams that tend to sit Denver out. We'll go through that list once we get a little bit closer to the event. But there are teams that say, you know what? Don't got to tune up for it. Don't get the budget to hurt the parts. So we're going to wait this one out and pick you back up again in Sonoma. But remember, the Western Swing this year, which I'm not sure I've ever been as excited for a Western Swing as I am this year, begins in Denver the 16th, 17th, and 18th of July. Then it goes to Sonoma the 23rd, 24th, 25th of July. And then it goes to Pomona the 30. 31 and 1 July and August so um, it's different as everything is this year but that Pomona race with night racing is going to be amazing it's going to be an incredible way for us to close this western swing which is always one of the neatest most telling chapters of any NHRA camping world drag racing series season now the weekend after the western swing I'm actually going to go call a race in Idaho and I would recommend if you got nothing going on the weekend of August 6, 7, 8 you come up and hang out with us at Firebird Raceway up in Idaho, up in Boise. They're having the 50th annual Night Fire Nationals, and it will be a historic weekend. I am incredibly honored to be up there. It's one of the coolest NHRA-sanctioned tracks in the country, along with the Bandemir family, along with the the Bader family. The new family that runs that track takes the same level of pride, takes the same level of care, takes the same level of detail and attention to delivering a great experience. And it'll be my first visit there. I have lived vicariously through that track in video and still photos, but cannot wait to be up there at the end of August. So, you know, the NHRA drag racing schedule goes, I'm not going to say haywire, but it goes pretty much haywire once we get to the Western Swing because after Pomona, you have one week off. You go Topeka, Brainerd, you have effectively one week off, and it's Indy, Maple Grove, Charlotte, St. Louis, back to back to back to back, then Dallas, Bristol, a week off, Vegas. It's It's going to be 
a throwdown, and none of us can wait for it to start. So, that being said, let's transition into our first guest on this show. His name is Mark Ingersoll. He is the crew chief, along with Tim Freeman on Erica Anders Camaro. This is a guy who has lived his life in the sport, and they picked up a very impressive win last weekend at Summit Racing Equipment Motorsports Park. Mark Ingersoll, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing good, Brian. How are you? I'm doing really well, man. And this was um, this was really one for the books uh, in Ohio. And I certainly want to talk about last weekend and really everything that's led up to it. But pretty wild to see how that one shook out. I mean, Greg Anderson obviously looked incredibly strong over the course of the weekend. And I'm not saying you guys snuck up on him, but you kind of snuck up on him. <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, we struggled for sure. We made a decent run qualifying uh, the first session on Friday night. Ended up, I think, second at that time but then he made a really great run saturday morning and uh i kind of he was right in front of us so we you know i watched him go and he ran a 60 i'm like man there's no way you know so uh, i had to be i thought you know be a little bit more aggressive here and it didn't work out so uh we actually had to shut off on that run but then we started working on it and uh getting back to what we do and uh you know with her you have to give her a car because she's going to uh, win most of them, you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, you have to race her different, for sure. And, and which I think is very interesting, and I think it's always interesting when we look at pro stock over the course of a given weekend because, you know, the the amount of change that happens from a first round or first qualifying session tune-up versus, you know, what is typically a warmer Saturday two-session days is really fascinating to watch. And, you know, I think we've gone into a lot of these races this year and we've looked at Friday night being like, all right, this is the only time anybody's going to be fast, but it's been kind of surprising on some of these days where it didn't really look like teams would be able to improve on a Saturday. You and a bunch of the other kind of top level teams have been able to do that. Well, you're going to think about it this way too. You know, uh, with that run, you want to make sure you make a decent run, but it's really hard to go out there and, and go for it. You know, like we did before, yeah. which we used to have a run Q1 would be, you know, something you could tune for the Friday night run, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and you already qualified and, and you could uh, hang it after a little bit more. So it's a, it's a lot different mentality, but I think we're all getting used to it. And I think that's with Greg too, you know what I mean? He, uh, he went out there and made a really good run Saturday morning. So, uh, um, I wasn't thinking anybody was going to go that fast, but yeah, no, nobody else was either. <laughs> yeah. He did it for sure. <clears throat> Talk to me a little bit about Norwalk because it was to me, you know, we kept looking at Sunday and it's like, man, it's going to be a billion degrees and the track's probably going to be 140. And then we ended up having the cloud cover and the rain. And it must have played hell with you guys in terms of, you know, how you set the car up for first round. Because I don't think, I don't really think that day played out the way anybody thought it would weather wise and track temperature wise. Right. The first round was, uh, we struggled a little bit. Actually, first round, you know, lucky to win. And uh, we got it down through there and got the win. But, uh, and then we just started working on it in the track. Uh, we made some changes for, uh, you know, E2, and it, it was in the right direction for sure. And then I just kept getting a little bit more aggressive as we went. And then when we, when we ran uh, in the final, you know, we had to go for it a little bit more. So we, uh, we made quite a few changes, and uh, and it stuck, and we made a really good run. I thought uh, both cars made a really good run, you know. Yeah. I think that was low for the weekend for both cars. So it was, it was a good day. It really was a good day, and <clears throat> leading up to Norwalk, there had been you know some some moments where lo- looking at that at Erica's car, going okay, you know it's in the hunt. This is the car's running where it needs to be. There have been other races where it hasn't quite been on the pace, and then of course 
you know, she had the red light, and I thought I thought she was going to get out of the car and flip it over like the Incredible Hulk. She was so mad at herself <laughs> looking at the top end footage. She was so angry at herself for pushing the tree, but it, that's really kind of her <coughs> gift is her ability to, to do what she does on the starting line. But talk to me about kind of evolving the tune-up so far this year because it really does seem like the car has come to where you need it to be now. Well, we've worked on it, you know, like I said, and it's, you know, I feel like our season hasn't been as great as it could have been, but there's a lot of races we've lost by a couple thousands yeah. here yeah. and there. And it's just, you know, we just haven't had things go our way. Um, we've tried it. We're, we've been working on some new parts as we've developed through this year. And we're just now getting them built and getting enough spare stuff and getting them in all the cars. And uh, so it's been a learning deal with that, but I think we're on the right track right now. And uh, um, you know, of course with her, uh, it's hard to not give her a car where a lot of people go up there and hope it sticks. Yeah. I go up there thinking I got to give her a car and beat the other guy in the other lane. You know what I mean? So it's just a different mentality with her. And uh, so, but uh, she's so good at it. It's just unbelievable. She amazes me all the time. Yeah. And the thing that, the thing that stands out, to me about Erica is like these moments not necessarily when the chips are down but really when they are I guess it's she just doesn't swing and miss and in a moment like Norwalk where by all rights we're looking at Greg Anderson's car and the thing has just been so dominating over the course of the weekend not that we didn't think you guys didn't have a chance but you just look at the raw performance of everything you go geez Louise what's he got in the tank now and she never swings and misses when it's a final round and she knows she needs a little something it's 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 almost like superhuman it's crazy it is crazy and then and that's how she does it when the, when the chips are down she rises where a lot of people you know they fade yeah. you know what i mean and and they're scared and she's not she's she's uh goes up there and um gives it her best for sure and uh you know that's just how she does it when we talk about you know when we talk about drivers in the fuel classes and and you know how they the, the small things they do the way they stage the car this and that uh, how does that translate really back into the pro stock? Whereas the consistency of the driver, which it, the driver has more going on in a pro stock car than anywhere else. They don't necessarily just meet on the starting line, but how does the consistency of a driver play into the tune-up of the race car, even as the thing's down track? I mean, where you're setting the shift light, stuff like that. How does that all play back into the driver? Well, that's what a lot of people don't see about her, um, is all they see is her reaction time. But her consistency driving that car is just crazy. Um, she's never on the clutch pedal, on the burnout, backing up. You know what I mean? All that stuff matters, heating the clutch up. Her shift points are almost always right on. Because, you know, with our red limiter situation now, so, you know, before it was like, oh, you missed a shift 100 high or whatever. It was no big deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right now, you want to get the max out of 10.5, so you're you have no room for error, yeah. And that's what people don't really understand. You know, you hit ten five, you want to go ten five, but not ten five or one. <laughs> you know I mean, so you have no room for error, and that's what she's just so consistent. You know, what I mean, staging the car, uh, it's just it's just remarkable. What uh, for you and your job and what you do? What is the most satisfying element outside of winning races, which I realize is the ultimate satisfaction? But for you as a as a crew chief and a guy who sets these cars up to run, what are the things that when when the, when everything goes the right way? What are the things that you take the most pride in? Well, I think just like when you win and you see the celebration on the starting line, 
you know, you see everybody's happy and all the work work that goes into that to get to that point. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of downs in this too. So, yeah. uh, when you win and you see, you know, everybody's got a camera these days. So yeah. there's a, there's a camera <laughs> everywhere. So you get to see so many celebrations for, and so many angles and it's just, uh, a great feeling, you know, you know, taking pictures after the win and everybody's happy and it's just a, that's what makes it worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this is not something that uh, is new to you in terms of winning races and getting photos taken at the end of an afternoon. And I really want to talk a little bit about, about your history in the sport. And of course your family history in the sport. I mean, it's the Ingersoll name runs back. I mean, I know through your dad. I don't know if it, I don't know if there was Ingersoll's racing before him, but let's talk a little bit about that, about your upbringing in the sport of drag racing. Well, you know, of course, my dad always raced when I was younger, and you know that's where it all started from. You know, he was uh, that's all he. Uh, you know, he had a little repair shop that he worked on regular cars, and but that was just to make enough money to go racing. Yeah, and we went racing every weekend, as far as I can remember back. You know, that's what we did on the weekends, where a lot of people. Went on vacations and stuff like that. We went racing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what we did. So, and, and, this, uh, and, and I think I mean your dad was not a guy that was stuck thinking inside the box either, man. Like whether we're talking about the Pinos back in the day, or obviously that Buick, I don't want to talk about too. But I mean, I think this is a great guy to learn the sport from because he does not seem to have been confined to the typical <clears> rules. No, he he always was on the edge and ahead of his time. You know, forward thinking and that kind of thing and. That's what I'm, I try to do. You know what I mean? I've, uh, you know, seen what he did, and I've always tried to be a kind of ahead of it if I can be. You know what I mean? And he was he was that way. But, you know, with him, <clears throat> you had to work, and that's it's kind of made me who I am. You know what I mean? So it's uh, I owe a lot to him for sure. Yeah, it's certainly a, a great example, and I love talking to, to guys and, and girls in the sport who – who grew up with somebody that was that was just so hardcore, dedicated racer? Because it, it cuts one of two ways. I've met people that they had a they had a parent that was like a hardcore racer, and it, and at some point it shut them off to it. And I, but I know a lot more people who grew up in this environment that really fell in love with it and were able to take the lessons that they learned and, and apply them to the level that you're doing right now. Yeah, it, it's for sure, and it's that way in life too. You know what I mean? You if you want something, you got to work for it, and. And that's kind of what he, you know, he taught us. I mean, you you got to work for it. So that's where we're at. <clears throat> How old were you uh, in general terms? You don't have to give away your age here. But but, <laughs> the, but the when you guys were racing the turbo Buick car that, that your dad is so well known for, you know, legacy-wise, how old were you then? I was, I was like 19, 20. Man. And it must have been awesome because that thing was, you know, as big a deal as it was at the time. So many people look back on that car now and, and see how kind of groundbreaking it was. And you guys were doing stuff with that thing that that really no one was even thinking was possible. Right. And you got to think, you know, with what he had to work with was a lot different than what they have to work with today. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. As far as clutch management and, you know, engine management and computers and you know they first started running that stuff with no computer and then they <laughs> finally got one on it and it was a mechanical fuel injection and you know it just it was just uh a lot of the seat of the pants feel to tune it you know what i mean compared to you know these days 
And can you remember, you know, developing this thing to actually get it to run down the racetrack? So, and again, for people listening, like, you know, the Buddy Ingersoll turbocharged Buick, this legendary car that, you know, was allowed to run IHRA Pro Stock for a very short amount of time and and, uh, until it was asked not to do that anymore. But you have to, I'm wondering if there were some big teething struggles to get that thing right enough to take it out and compete with it. And what was it like when you first got it to make some full pulls down the racetrack? Well, it was, you know what I mean? It was, uh, you had a lot more power than you could get to the ground. You know what I mean? So that was a learning process. And then, uh, people don't really realize, but Bruce Allen had a lot to do with that car or that really? engine combination. And, uh, cause he worked at McLaren in Detroit and that's where all that stuff come from. You know what I mean? So originally, and, uh, so that was, uh, that and then the Buick engineers, Bernard Santavi and some other people. There was a lot of factory support behind that thing. So, it's uh, you know, it's it's it, it was before its time for sure. Oh, it was, and it scared the hell out of people, which makes it even better, you know. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little yep. bit about going back to kind of the, the NHRA season this year. We're, we're looking forward, and um, no pro stock at Denver, so you got a little bit of a break here um, before you pick it back up again. When you take away, well, what do you take away from a win like you had at Norwalk? And was it? I know you mentioned you know, you're working on some new parts and stuff like that, but was this Norwalk win like finally everybody gets to look at each other and go, okay, like we got the first one out of the way, we're kind of on the right path right now? Is that is that really what that feels like? Well, yeah, it was. We, you know, we we struggled a little bit at the beginning, and then we just had some bad luck, and then we got it together and won Vegas, and then we he just it just. Here and there, just one or two thousandths of a second, I just felt like we were, and I kept telling Erica that we're good, just hang in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, but when everybody goes up there and they have their best light of their career every time they run her. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, you know what I mean? It's like, so you you have to take that, you know what I mean? Because that's what you get when you're, you're the best. Everybody takes a chance. And that's some of it. And, you know, I need to be probably a little more aggressive with the car because I, you know, I, I can, we can run faster, but I just don't want to go over the edge with her. You know what I mean? So it's always a balancing act of how much chance you want to go. Cause you know, you don't want to go up there and, and I want to know every time we go up there, we're going down the track. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's just how I tune. What has been the, the biggest thing you've learned since we went to the, the EFI, you know, rev limiter era of this class that really did change a whole a lot of stuff that, you know, invisible things that fans don't really see at home. But what are the things that you've learned the most over this period of time, which I which I guess is now, what, seven years or so? What you know, what maybe what were things before we had a rev limiter, before we had EFI versus now that we are in this world and have been for several years? What was the major thing that you take away from that now? Well, for one, carburetors were did a remarkable job that you took for granted <laughs> <laughs> because they covered up a, a lot of a lot of stuff. And you know, uh, you know, with fuel injection, you have to tell it everything to do. Yeah. Where carburetor kind of compensated, and uh, Jake Hairston does the fuel injection tuning for us, and he does a excellent job. He's uh, tuning four or five cars every race. So as far as fuel injection. So kind of like I'm tuning the cars, he's tuning the fuel injection. So we're both really busy. So, um, you know, and, and with the fuel injection and the rev limiter, the driver is so much more important because, like I said before, there's no room for no air. Window. Yeah. There's no room for air. And uh makes a huge difference. Yeah, it really does. And on the chassis side of things, you know, outwardly we see cars that look – 
that continue to look about the same as they did and have for years. But underneath the skin, chassis-wise, what have been the refinements in terms of either adjustability that you have, and I know these things are like infinitely adjustable, or even subtle changes in chassis over the last, say, five or six years? What have been the differences there? Well, <clears throat> that's one thing we have on our side. You know, we have Rick Jones on our, our side, yeah. and uh, it's basically having your own chassis shop. Uh, so we can make changes as needed and uh, build our cars as needed where a lot of people, you know, just have to get a factory car from Rick or Jerry Haas or Bickle, whoever they're getting a car from. So we kind of have our own, you know, own chassis shop, engine shop, you know, everything is, uh, it's uh, Self-contained. a really good operation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Well, and Rick and Ricky have done, uh, you know, they're great guys, and and obviously Rick has brought so much knowledge to the to the chassis side, and he's got a great kind of, I think, mental approach to the way he does does his job, and he's right. he seems to be the type of guy too that's open for those conversations. Like you said, it's 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 one thing to have the guy on the phone; it's another thing to have the guy on the phone and say, "Hey, what if we try this?" And he says, right. "Yeah, let's try it." Yeah, yeah, he's always a, he's a phone call away for sure, and uh, I talk to him quite a bit, and. We're always beating up, you know, things across each other and uh, see if we can come up with ways to make it go faster. So as we look at what's going to be coming down to the back half of the regular season, uh, what are your favorite places to go racing at this time of the year? Obviously, uh, Sonoma is a place everybody seems to love for various reasons, but if if we look at our remaining racetracks over the course of 21, what's your favorite place to stop? Well, I'm kind of disappointed we're not going to Denver because that's always been my favorite place to race, you know, when I worked for AJ and uh, we won a ton of races oh, up yeah. there. So uh, it's it's a favorite place, but I really do like Sonoma. I think it's a cool place. Uh, I like all the tracks, really. You know, I mean, I don't, I like the the changes and, you know, where you have to make adjustments to the car and, and uh, you know, I think that's a good part of it. Keeps everybody on their toes and it certainly keeps it interesting for our uh, for our fans and for the racers alike. So, Mark, thanks for taking the time today. It's uh, great to catch up with you and congratulations on the Norwalk win. It was um, it was really cool to watch it. Not not necessarily from Greg Anderson's seat, but from pretty much everywhere else. It was a really uh, yeah. really exciting final round, and certainly it seems like the Melling Performance team is geared up to uh, certainly geared up to contend for a championship again. Well, I think we're good. We're in good shape, and. Uh, We'll see what happens here, but I, I put my money on Erica, for sure. It's tough to bet against her. Mark Ingersoll, thank you very much, man. Appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Always love talking to Mark. He is a guy that, uh, oddly, we tend to run into each other at the airport more often than I see anybody else. So Mark and I have had a whole lot of airport conversations. Brilliant guy, driven guy, motivated guy, passionate guy, and certainly one of the people in the brains that helps push this sport forward and helps drive uh, cars like Erica Enders and Elite Motorsports ahead in the pro stock world. So thanks for hint to him for taking the time for that conversation. Now we transition to our second guest, a man who has been lighting up scoreboards, picking up big checks, and winning world titles for years now. Johnny LaBoose Jr. is one of the premier sportsman drag racers in the country, and he joins us for the first time in the NHRA Insider Podcast. Johnny, how you doing, man? Good. How are you, sir? Doing really well. So before we get into the meat of the discussion here, uh, you've spent a little bit more time than you planned in Norwalk, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes sir unfortunately we uh when we went to start the truck up to back up to the trailer monday morning it uh it wouldn't start basically <laughs> so i've been uh i've been a, a freightliner mechanic for the last three days <laughs> unfortunately uh i haven't really gotten very far uh i do a lot of troubleshooting like i would know how to do because you know i do work on all my own stuff most of the time yeah. and uh come to find out the ecm 
is fried. So nothing I could do would fix it. <laughs> I just I wanted I wanted to get that out of the way because I think it is a very realistic picture of you know kind of life on the road. I think uh you know there's a romantic idea out there that you just hit your hit your truck up and go drag racing around the country and nothing bad mm-hmm. ever gets in the way. But uh, these things happen. This is real life. Yeah, it's always a vacation. Just ask. <laughs> So man, it's been um, you know, it's been a good stretch of races for you here. Obviously, Epping and uh, Norwalk, and in two different categories. So I want to talk a little bit about the Epping weekend and Super Gas before we get into your Norwalk weekend and Super Comp. But you know, talk to me a little bit about this success you've been having and where you think it's coming from. Um, honestly, I'm a bracket racer at heart. Always will be. Uh, I after Gainesville. I told my girlfriend, Brittany, I was like, you know what? We, we got to go bracket racing. We got to get back, you know, and making all the laps. And I I totally think that uh, it comes from seat time. Yeah. And, I mean, even if it's in different cars, the drag through super comp, I bracket race it. I hadn't been racing the Corvette. Uh, actually, the first time it went down the racetrack since Gainesville, I believe, was I went to Atlanta. I did do that. Okay. And, and got beat early. Uh, but then went to Epping. Um, but the seat time and just, you know, just out there round pounding and confidence is, is key, I think. Uh, and I got, I got all my confidence back that I, you know, I had lost a little bit of it. I got it all back now. The cars are really, really good. Like, you know, like they typically always are. Uh, Anthony, he, he puts me in the, he gives me the choice of anything in the shop, uh, and, and puts me in the best equipment that he, you know, that he has. Yeah, I mean they're great cars and they and they work and obviously they need to be operated the right way, which is what you do. I'm interested in the you know making hits and getting laps because you know when we talk about different sports, whether you know baseball, guys will guys will watch tape or their swing if they get into a slump or stuff like stuff like that. When you go bracket racing, do you try to recognize like if you feel like you're you're missing in an area, you know, do you, do you concentrate necessarily on trying to do specific things better at different races or is it just analyzing? your total approach you know are you saying okay i gotta be better at the striper i gotta tighten it up here or there or is it literally just making the runs and looking at the time slip and recognizing your strengths and weaknesses uh with with bracket racing i mean unfortunately you have to be very close both ends either however your however your approach is whether you hold a lot or whether you dial honest and your car's got to be real good uh the packages are just crazy crazy tight as as they are sometimes you know on on the 90 side absolutely uh, not taking not taking anything yeah. away over here there's a lot more variables uh sometimes you'll run what i call first round three or four times yeah. you know if you run first round at eight o'clock and then you run second round at uh 4 p.m and then third round the next day again so that's like three totally different uh chances of, of different weathers uh, track conditions, you know, who you run behind. So, uh, but over there, it's like I'd gotten to where I was, I just wasn't confident on the start line on a full tree and went to Bradenton to a bracket race there and, and really didn't do any good, but figured out, you know, what, what I was doing wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, and fixed it and got very confident. And then, you know, had a, you know, a fair amount of success. I didn't win any bracket races, which, you know, that's all I'm going for is to win. But I got like three semis and three weekends at uh, 15,000 or more to win. Uh, yeah, so you, so, race. yeah. So you're able to put a couple of bucks in your pocket for sure. By the time right, you get so, I'm, so, so we're making money now and, and I'm making laps 
getting comfortable, getting confidence. And then I, I really felt like it carried right over uh, when I came back and went to Epping and, and obviously here. Yeah, you know, I think we talk about it a lot, but I don't know if people understand, you know, whether we're talking about Super Gas or Super Comp, these are typically races that are, you know, seven rounds. I think you had to go seven rounds to win uh, to win Super Comp in, in Norwalk. Um, so many of our fans are just conditioned to think it's a 16-car field and you win four rounds and you win the race. Seven rounds, the, the percentage chance of making a mistake just goes up exponentially by the time you get to round six and seven, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and, like, and going back to the bracket races, the 75,000 to win uh, loose rockers race at Piedmont. I lost eighth round and that was in the semis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I bumped it one thou red. The guy made a good run beside me, but uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I would have liked to have had the ability, you know, the chance to see if I was able to beat him, but I bumped it a thou red and that's just, you know, it's part of the game. Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had in drag racing was to go to the SFG $1.1 million race last year up in Michigan, and mm-hmm. I think it was a 630-something car first round, it, you know, not, not necessarily for the main event, but for one of the support races, it was like 600-something cars in the first round, and the amount of traffic that goes down the racetrack at those events is incredible, and obviously the ability to enter multiple cars and then double enter those multiple cars, for a guy like you... As as you're talking about running these bracket races, it's a great opportunity. Like you said, you can if you're running both cars and you can double enter both, you're going to be on the racetrack a whole lot, and it just doesn't stop. That's the one thing that blew me away at those races where we'd start running cars at eight in the morning, and it was just constant traffic until we quit about midnight. It was wild. Sure, sure. And and like with Anthony, he built a new uh, bracket car this year, so I've taken it now for I think three weekends. I took it a super count car. They run within like two or three hundredths of each other. They're they're identical basically. Uh, so so we get to Atlanta and I, I actually had to run it in Super Comp and he wanted to put a different set of tires and wheels on it uh, that were not on the car at the time. So we, we took them off and I said we got to put brakes on this thing. He said, "Bruce, this car is brand new. How's the brakes wore out?" I said, "Because I've been bracket racing it three weeks <laughs> and I put." And I've put, he went in there and he's, of course, he writes everything down uh, for uh, maintenance purposes and stuff. And uh, he says, We should put 85 runs on this car already. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's wild. But yeah, that's that's the name of the game. That's the name of the game, right? You've got to get Right. You- and it, it gets you, it gets me, anyways. A lot of people are different, but it gets me in, in, a, in a routine uh, and gets me concentrating better. Uh, trying to you know trying to execute better and and tighter you know when we talk about the index style racing that you're doing and and winning at and have been a world champion at uh and on the nhra side of things it's got to be interesting for you for a bunch of different reasons but when you when you run the large payout bracket races you see a lot of the same guys you know there's a there's a what i would call kind of a premier group big league group of racers that tend to follow that series and that style of racing very closely you being one of them and when you run the index stuff you run into a lot of competitors that one you may never see again or you've never seen before and it is important to kind of maintain some idea of people's typical strategy right or is that something you do on a weekend to weekend basis versus a you know event to event type thing um well that kind of goes back to and, and a good friend of mine justin lopes uh went to we were in the truck together with joey santangelo and uh we were talking about how you know you do you do research on everyone like once the ladder unfortunately we don't have time most of the time before first round because we're 
Brandon Paired first round. Yeah. But then after that, you see who's on your side of the ladder and who you can run into. So at that point, you just start doing your research on, you know, is there cars, you know, I write down a lot, you know, it reacts 60 foots a lot to where I can see, is their cars good? You know, are they turning loose good uh, reaction time-wise? Yeah. And and so, yes, you do your research there, but absolutely, you know, you run into people and you're like, you know, I don't know if this guy's, you know, setting up real hot or <laughs> right. if, if he's real aggressive at the finish line, if he's, you know, basically a dialer. So, yeah, there, there's a little a bit of the unknown, and you'll see that sometimes, you know, I'm <clears> – <throat> you roll through and you take a little bit too much because the guy was, you know, super aggressive and you just, you know, you just weren't up on the wheel and ready for that big drop. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a cool thing. And it's one of those kind of hidden factors to this style of racing that a lot of people don't understand where it is. You really, to, to be very good at this at a, at a high level, you, you have to have a strategy and really match, try to match your strategy as best as possible against the guy in the other lane that, you you have an idea of what he's going to do. It's like a pitcher, right? If the guy has a really good fastball, you can guess he's probably going to try to throw you a fastball to strike out. But you know, sometimes the guy throws you a curve. So I think it's 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 a neat sure. thing that you have to be prepared to kind of <clears throat> deal with that when it comes up. Yeah, for sure. And I was I was one of them. I bracket raced for for twenty five years uh, and, and like dabbled at best in pro tree racing. Uh, most of that was around in my local tracks. They run a super gas program there every Saturday night. So I would run that, run my father's car in that. Some, but I, I was that guy that looked at Drag Race Central and said, "Man, these these guys don't make runs. You know, they <laughs> they're twenty and one above. I mean, you do that very many times bracket racing, and you're not going to go very many rounds. Right. right. But then I come over here and I and I see that it's wow. I mean, the wind just changed directions. You know, from yesterday it was ten mile an hour tailwind. Now it's a twenty mile an hour headwind." Uh, you're running behind the pros today. You were running, you know, on a sportsman prep track yesterday. There's so many variables that people don't take into consideration when they just look at the numbers. I mean, yes, obviously, uh, you know, you take a, a Luke, a, a Nick Folk, uh, Fletcher, the, the, the premium racers that they, you know, they're gonna they're gonna shine. Yeah. Uh, just because you know they're they're that good, their equipment's that good. They live it, breathe it, and they, you know, they they prepare. Yeah, they do, uh, and that's and that's a thing that's um, that's that's that separates, like you're saying, it separates the the guys who can who can pick up a trophy once or twice in their career, and the guys who have picked up, you know, in the case of Dan Fletcher, a hundred of them over the course of his career. It's that that level sure. of preparation and dedication. Uh, you mentioned and, uh, oh, go, go for uh, it. not taking anything away from oh, the guys not. that only gets one or two here or there. Not not taking anything because you know what? They probably got families and jobs that they have to be at and have obligations where, you know, we have families, but this is our job. Yeah. You know, and, and just like having to work on this truck for three days. You know what? That's just part of that's part of the job. You just suck it up and do it and get on with it. 
Yeah, and that's uh, that's the attitude you have to have if you're going to be successful. You know, uh, doing this for a living as you are, that's the attitude you got to have to uh, to survive. Let me ta- talk a little bit. You mentioned your dad, obviously a legendary racer in his own right. Um, the loose caboose, of course. You know, his signature car name that was used over the years. Uh, what were the biggest things that he taught you? I mean, you go to the racetrack and racing his car. What were the things that that he kind of imparted into you that have led you to do this for a living and do it successfully? Um, I said this a few times when I was asked in different interviews about it and it was, it was, I felt the cruelest thing that he could have ever done. Looking back now, it was the best thing he could have ever done for me. So my first win, I was 15. I win the bracket race. I, I think it was, I think it was a, a 2,500 to win race. Or, I, I don't know. I, it was across Tennessee and I think it was 2,500 okay. to win. So I win. And we load up. We got a ramp truck and a flat trailer. We got two door cars. We get everything loaded up. And before we got out the gate good, I mean, we, we had not got to the interstate. And that's very close. Oh, yeah. The, the highway runs right behind the racetrack. I've been there before. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he says, uh, son, you did good. I'm proud of you. Now forget it. We got to go win tomorrow. Yeah. And it's like, wow, hold on. I'm 15. I just won. I, I mean, I'm on cloud nine. And it was, it was, you can't live for yesterday. You gotta, you gotta move forward and you've got to keep getting better, keep doing better and, and not, not settle. So, I mean, he, you know, he made me, he made me the winner. It's a, that's an incredible lesson. And like you said, as a, as a kid, you're looking at him going, what the hell are you talking about? What are you talking about? Forget it. This is the biggest thing I've ever done. What are you, what are you talking right. about? Yeah. And I'm 15. Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great. That's a, it's a great story and certainly a, a powerful lesson. And one last topic I want to uh, talk to you about before uh, I let you go is, is Kyle Seipel and um, a guy that, that you've had a, a very long standing relationship with. I think so many of us in the sport have been able to call him a friend, but um it just the whole thing sucks you know and there's no other way to say it it's just a a a a tough he is such a tough guy to lose because of the fact that he was so good at everything he did he was such a great influence on so many people and i know that includes you as well yeah for sure uh very tough to you know tough to lose him uh you know feel can't imagine the the pain his family's going through uh my family has, has we've lost you know, family members way too early. Uh, Kyle was a, he was a great guy and he just touched so many people. He did. He did. And in, 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 in such a great way. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, back in your, during your championship run, you guys had, uh, had some <laughs> great interaction at the racetrack and, you know, the guy was one of the great savants of all time in, in sportsman racing, as far as dialing a race car in and, and whether he was doing it at the racetrack with somebody, whether he was doing it over the phone watching NH3.TV, he just had this gift. And the people he he shared that gift with are so many. That was the other thing. He was a very generous guy. You know, for as good oh, as he, he was, spread it. you know, it's, he would it's definitely amazing. spread it. For yeah. sure. I've got a couple of things that I'll never forget of him. Uh, one was Sunday morning at Charlotte uh, in 17 when I doubled. He was there and, and – and, I've got the notepads and, and the Jake's log book that he scratched in, and he was a, definitely a numbers guy. Uh, and then 
when I won the championship in Pomona in 17. He rides the Zuma scooter up. I'm a Larry Bradshaw's trailer. He had just beat Chris Cannon. And I was, you know, in, in the car with him, basically, you know, thanking him and, you know, all that. Well, Kyle slides up and he goes to put the scooter on the kickstand. And it's like, it's too much effort. He just throws the scooter down the ground, comes running at me, grabs me, bear hugs me. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a moment I'll never forget. Uh, it was, uh, he's, he was a special man for sure. Yeah. And, and the fact that the fact that people coast to coast knew and loved this guy just speaks to who he is. It's not like he was, and, and there are great people that race locally and have their kind of the local legend type, but this dude, um, this dude had an effect on everybody and, and really his overarching effect and legacy on what he's done, in my opinion, to elevate bracket racing and, and elevate the, the ability of guys like you and, and others to go out there and, and win enough money to either make a living or change their own lives in a race car. It's crazy. I mean, this guy had a vision to do something that I don't think anybody actually thought was possible. And not only did he and Peter do it, they continue and Peter will carry it on. It's, it's an amazing thing they've done. Yeah, for sure he did that. Uh, and and I, I made this statement a couple of times uh, for this past weekend at North. I, I don't know that I've ever, I mean, when you race for a living, you got to be motivated to win for money. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I've ever been as motivated to win for him, uh, uh, to win a race. Yeah. And to do it for him. Uh, you know, I thought about it on the drive here when we drove up, I think, well, I think we left Wednesday getting here. So yeah, I've been here over a week now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I thought about it the whole way here. I, you know, I wanted to win the semi, and I wanted to go make my sign, and nobody see it, and, and just you know have it. Yep. And you know, and do it for him. Yeah. But you know, the fact of what we talked about him touching so many people, my kids probably never saw Kit Call uh, five or six times, seven times in their lives, and they, I mean they're just devastated. Yeah. Uh, at, at 15 and 18 years old, that's he touched such a a, a wide range of people. Yeah, genuinely, uh, a genuinely good guy, and that's uh, probably the best that we can say about him. And and wherever he was uh, on Sunday, he saw the sign, man. You know, he saw it. You know, he was laughing his ass off when when you turn the wind light on on Sunday afternoon, and uh, it. Um, I know it meant a lot to a lot of people that you were able to do that, and certainly uh, when you were able to flash the sign up there at the top end, it, uh, I, I got to love my throat. Anybody that knew Kyle certainly got to love with their throat. So all the respect for that, and um, and, and again, all the uh, all the congratulations for your your recent success and and what appears to be an incredible season going forward. So man, I, I appreciate you taking the time. I apologize for the truck issues, and uh, you know this may be bad news for everybody else. You know, if you're stuck at Norwalk and they're racing this weekend, maybe you just stay right. Yeah, most likely we're going to stay at this point yes sir <laughs> <laughs> well there you go man john thank you so much and again congratulations uh, thank you sir and that brings us to the end of another episode of the nhra insider podcast what an interesting guy what an interesting story and certainly the connection between john labus and and kyle seipel runs very deep and very strong you can hear the emotion in his voice love the fact that these these guys that race on the level that john do have this innate ability not only to drive their race cars but they are students of the game students of their opponents and it is a very tactical style of drag racing 
well beyond what you just see on the racetrack. We'll be back next week with another episode of the NHRA Insider as we continue to gear up for the Dodge Mile High Nationals presented by Pennzoil at Bandemir Speedway in just a few weeks. We'll be talking more Camping World Series. We'll be talking more uh, Lucas Oil Series. Maybe we'll work some pro-modified stuff in and some sportsman drag racing in next week's show as well. It is a free skate next week. No race coming up except for those Mile High Nationals in just a few weeks. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks as always for listening to the NHRA Insider Podcast.